Uh, hey, church, I love uh, that we're just in this book of, of Philippians, this letter, and so I would invite you to open it. Uh, every week, there's no surprises. You just know where we're going to be. This week, we're in Philippians 2, 12 to 18, and so there's a Bible in front of you. would love for you to have it out. <clears throat> we're going to spend the next... You know what's interesting? <clears throat> I say 30 minutes, and um, it's going to be 30 minutes. I, I don't know how, but pretty much every week I am 30 minutes on the dot when you go back and look at Spotify. And so I don't plan it. I don't rehearse it. I don't rehearse my, my sermons at all. Uh, I just write them, and then they just end up 30 minutes. And so for the next 30 minutes, we're going to be in Philippians 2, 12 to 18. And uh, hey, how about this? As a way to honor God's word, why don't one last time we just stand and... Um, I'm going to read this, these verses for us. Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the reading of God's word. You can be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, as we turn to the Bible, uh, we pray this every week, Lord, Holy Spirit, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us for your glory? Amen. So Paul continues in his letter by reassuring the Philippians of his affection by calling them his beloved. He, he references them as his beloved. And then he commends them for their obedience. Obedience to what, you might ask, right? Their obedience to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. If you just follow the, the progression, their obedience to work out their salvation with fear and and trembling. It seems, it seems a bit strange, doesn't it? Like at first glance, it's kind of this like, uh, obey God and fear him. Uh, to a new Christian or to a young person, uh, that doesn't sound very appealing, does it? It sounds kind of, um, I don't know, authoritarian or sort of like, like a dictator. Or so, it's kind of scary, like obey me and fear me, okay? But put into context here, we really have some of the richest practical theology in the Bible, and the result, if abided by, is absolute, total, complete, and abundant joy in God and joy in life, if we are willing to heed these words, obey and fear. And let's kind of tease out and flesh out what, what he's talking about here. What Paul is referring back to when he references obedience is actually verse 8 that Adam tapped into last week where he writes that Christ was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so I want you to see that when he says that we are to be obedient, he's actually re referring, he, he's, that's the second time he's used the word, and the first time he uses the word, it's in reference to Jesus, where Jesus went to the cross. He was obedient to death, even to death on a cross. 
In other words, Paul is saying, he's saying this. He's saying, Christian, um, it will be it will be tempting for you, especially thinking about, okay, this church is about 10 years old at this point. Um, they're, they're, it's, it's legal now to evangelize Gentiles, but, but, they're, but they're still experiencing persecutions and, and all sorts of just trials. And so Paul is recognizing this and says, Christian, it will be tempting for you to cower and to cave into the pressures to reject Jesus, okay? It will be tempting for you to cower and to cave into the pressures to reject Jesus. But remember that Jesus himself was obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. He, he has led the way all the way to the cross, but he didn't stay hanging on it. After being obedient to death, he then made death obey him. He went to the tomb for three days, and then he got up and he ascended back to the Father. And so, in that sense, the significance, I want you to see this, the significance of, of, of obedience and fear and trembling is simply, Christian, just emphasizing that God is holy and powerful and that he beat death. So this God that you are obedient to is the same God who has secured a place for you in his kingdom, so you have nothing to fear on earth, rather only fear the might and power of the God of your salvation. That's that's who you are to fear. He goes on to say, it is God who works in you, and so this obedience isn't uh, like this white-knuckling, you know, sanctification process, or white-knuckling your way into God's acceptance, Firstly, the obedience of Jesus is what makes God accept you. That, that's what makes God accept you, not your obedience, but rather Jesus' obedience on your behalf. And then the work of God in you is what makes you able to work for his good pleasure. Now, you can call that discipleship, okay? What I just described is discipleship. It's the Holy Spirit's work in you to to. to to lead you to, to empower you to be able to work for God's good pleasure, okay? Let's talk about discipleship for a minute because it's a word we use a lot in the church and it's important for us to understand this. This teaching is heavy on discipleship and on disciples of Jesus reflecting, as he, as he says, like you are, you are lights in the world. Uh, this teaching is heavy on, on, on disciples of Jesus reflecting the goodness the graciousness and the glory of the gospel of God. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I still tend to get kind of hung up on discipleship being like an academic practice. Like we, we sit down one-on-one over a cup of coffee and we, we, st- we study together, right? Um, or maybe in a small group context as well. And that can certainly be an aspect of discipleship. But the language Paul is going to use here is lights of the world, Lights of the world, of which we are going to get into, but I want us to consider this idea that Paul brought up of his presence, like when I was with you, but now in my absence. Now I'm no longer here, okay? Um, like when we leave the kids at home, uh, we, we have the same conversation every single time, and Noah's here, and she can attest to this. Uh, it's like, be good to one another, any parent, like be kind, um, you know, Pick up after your, just obey the house rules. We don't maybe use that language, but they understand what we're saying. 
Obey the house rules as they are good for you. Maybe, maybe even obey them more so than like when we're here. Because we are not home to, to guide you back on track or back on course. And most often they do this. And yes, also there have been times we, we get those phone calls or even like when uh, we finish out our, our evening um, and we return home and maybe the mood in the house is heavy because two hours prior something happened or something was said and we weren't home to help like reconcile the situation, right? Parents have been there. Paul knew that his presence with them was so helpful. Like when, when, I'm, when I was with you, it was a good thing. He inspired them to godliness. He trained them and he taught them. Paul believed in the power of disciples making disciples. So like that's actually one of our, one of our values as a church is we, we say like we want to be a church of, of like disciples who make disciples. So we don't want to be like, we don't want the, the, the staff to only be the ones responsible for making disciples. That's not, we want to empower people to, to make disciples themselves. That's the multiplication of discipleship. Paul believed that also discipleship begins the moment that you meet someone. The very moment you meet someone is when discipleship happens, is when it begins. That's actually what happened with Paul in planting this church in Acts chapter 16. It says that when him and his disciples arrived into Philippi, they found a group of God-fearers or women down by the river, and they went down and, and share the gospel with these women and they came to faith in Jesus and, and the rest is history. So it begins, it began right away. Actually, the first uh, believer in Philippi was a woman named Lydia and it happened fairly quickly. Paul arrives down by the river, shares the gospel. She gets saved, she gets baptized and then uh, the effects of discipleship continued on in Philippi. Um, and I really believe this. Like the, the second you shake someone's hand, you begin discipling them and they begin discipling you in some way. Your personality, your attitude, your appearance, your words are being observed and the person that you are engaging is, is subconsciously being shaped by you. Either more and more into the likeness and image of Jesus or less and less. At one point in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he actually said, you are to imitate me as I imitate Christ. He goes on to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You must have an awareness that you are being shaped by, Christian. You are being molded by and even discipled by every post you read, every book you crack, every podcast you listen to, every show you watch every friend you keep. Um, anybody know Jim Rohn? He's a uh, leadership kind of guru. He, he says, you become the five people you spend the most time with. You become the five people you spend the most time with. And then he concludes by saying, choose carefully. Choose carefully. So Paul is saying, I'm no longer there to spend time with you. So now it's all the more important that in my absence, you imitate me as I imitated Christ when I was in your presence. This week I've reflected on the life and death of, of Timothy Keller um, a, a lot. He, he's, he was a prolific pastor, author, 
uh, just leader, voice in the church. He influenced and impacted my theological framework more than any pastor, um, period. And I've been thinking about his life and ministry and pulling all of his books off my shelves. And um, I'm sure Tim would say the same to anyone who has benefited from his exceptional faith in Christ. Like, all the more in my absence, all the more in my absence, continue on, continue on. Be obedient to the ways and teachings of Jesus. I actually went to a funeral as well this week. There was a, a, a brother in Christ uh, and just godly saint uh, named Ron Kinney who passed away. Uh, Ron, I, I was, Sarah and I had the uh, joy of being a part of their small group for years. Ron was 72 years old and I had battled dementia for the past three years. And just the, sh- the sharing of the testimonies uh, of, of Ron's, he, he was a, man, he was an evangelist. He just boldly, he, he would just, his wife actually stood up and in her eulogy was just sharing stories about how they would be at the grocery store and she couldn't find him and he'd be in the egg section just like sharing, sharing the gospel as somebody as they're trying to buy eggs. And, uh, and, and it worked. And he had the gift of evangelism. I think Ron would say the same thing. All the more in my absence. I, I've ran my race well. I'm no longer there with you, but all the more in my absence, believers. I actually have this idea for a midweek kind of seminar series that I'm still kind of teasing out. I talked to Tim about it this week. Um, this, this, this the like monthly uh, seminar, maybe where like once a month we get together and we would just study giants of the faith and their Christ-like example. So like, just do like a bio study together of, 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 of believers, whether they're deceased or even alive. So I threw out some examples like Charles Spurgeon or Martin Lloyd-Jones or Amy Carmichael or Sojourner Truth or Tim Keller. And again, even the saints that maybe are alive still today, like Matt Chandler and N.T. Wright and Jackie Hill Perry and Rosaria Butterfield. Like, it is good for us to honor. The Bible exhorts us to honor and to to listen to and to follow the examples of other believers as they are imitating Christ, we too are to imitate them in many ways. Yes, of course, of course, of course, we all know the imperfections and we're all sinners and yes, yes, yes to all that. But there is something exceptional about certain giants of the faith, you might call it, or believers who are imitating the ways of Jesus and I go, I want to live very much so like this person does. As they imitate Christ, I want to imitate them. So more to come on that idea, but I think it'd be neat. Let's keep moving. So verse 14, Paul continues on, and he gets into to their heart posture as they follow Christ. He says, don't grumble. He says, don't grumble. Now, I want you to remember this, that the, the primary literature they would have had and that they would have been reading would have been the Torah. And Paul would have had in mind here the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years in search of the promised land, right? And we all know they were big-time grumblers. John Beeson, who's a contributor to the Gospel Coalition, writes, uh, there was only one obstacle that prevented Israel from fulfilling God's mission. I love this so much. It wasn't Pharaoh or his massive army. It wasn't Canaanite forces. It wasn't, I'm sorry, it was the Israelites' grumbling hearts, There was one obstacle that prevented Israel from fulfilling God's mission. It wasn't Pharaoh, it wasn't the Canaanites, 
It was the Israelites' grumbling hearts. The two Hebrew words translate, uh, translated grumble are lun and ragan. Lun connotes growling. Ragan is whispered rebellion. The Greek word translated grumble is gogazu. No. Tim, help me out. Go, goguzo. 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 I actually, I like that a lot. I'm just going to tell my kids, like, stop goguzoing. Um, these three words capture the state of our hearts when we grumble. Grumbling is growling against God, right, for whatever it may be. Now, I want you to see this. Israel's grumbling under the leadership of Moses really pressed into the issue of trust. That, that was like their biggest issue. They, didn't, they grumbled against him because they didn't trust him. In Numbers 14, we read, listen to this. This is so fascinating. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept at night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. <laughs> I mean, that is thick with grumbling. The Lord's response was, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Like, look around, he says. And so Moses begs God to show his people mercy, and God did, but there were consequences. That grumbling generation would not see the promised land. It would be their kids that would. And so Paul knew that grumbling can reveal our distrust in God's sovereign rule and reign over our lives. And as kingdom people now, Paul wanted these new believers in Philippi to see the promised land, to finish well. He's saying, Philippian believers, finish well. We can do better than the Israelites did. We can do better. We have Jesus. We have the power of the Spirit. He goes on to call them children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, it's easy for us to think, oh, Paul had no idea. This is 2,000 years ago. He had no idea what a twisted and crooked generation even looks like. The world is so much more messed up today than it was then. False. That's naive, generational amnesia. Hebrews uh, says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you can actually put the word sin in there as well. Sin is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It has always had the same objective and tactics to steal, kill, and destroy. And so Paul is saying in the midst of this twisted and crooked generation, we could say the same to us today, a thousand years from now, same is true. Verse 14, though, in the meantime, though, Paul says, followers of Jesus shine as lights in the world. That is your objective, holding fast to the word of truth. You want to know how to endure in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation? Shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of truth. There's a connection here between our discipleship, Christian, 
and shining as lights in the world. In other words, the closer you get to Jesus, the brighter you shine and reflect his glory. So no, you, you, you cannot do that alone. You, you need the assembly, you need the congregation, you need the church, you need discipleship, you need God's word in your life, you need it. You need truth being poured into your heart and your mind every single day. And as you do so, as you feast on the word of life, the word embodied, the word embodied is Jesus. The word of life would be God's word that he has given to us, that we feast on, that, and as we, as we, as we, as we do, we, we draw nearer and nearer to Jesus, and then in turn, we, we, we reflect his glory all the brighter. The metaphor Jesus used to describe the witness of Christian is light as well. Matthew 5, 14 to 16, it says, you're the light of the world, believer. A city set, set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As we begin to wrap up here, um, D.A. Carson writes, Christians are the light of the world, a world that by implication is shrouded in thick darkness. And so Jesus talks about two sources of physical light, the light from a city set on a hill and the light from a lamp set on a lampstand. The light from the city is reflected off the clouds. And the night, once perfectly dark, is no longer so desolate Likewise, Christians who let their light shine before men can't be hidden. The good light they shed lessens the darkness that, that would otherwise be absolute. And so then, what is this light by which Jesus' disciples lighten a dark world? According to Jesus in Matthew 5, 16, the light is the, your good deeds. That's what it is. That's the light. It's your good works. That's not salvific, but that's your light. That's the light of a disciple. It ain't isolating in a corner of a room, just studying the word all day. It's your good deeds. Performed by followers of Jesus, performed in such a way that at least some men, women, kids recognize these followers of Jesus as sons and daughters and kids of God and come to praise the Father whose sons they are. Carson goes on to say, I love this. He says, the norms of the kingdom worked out in the lives of kingdom people constitute the witness of the kingdom. Such Christians refuse to rob their employers by being lazy on the job or to rob their employees by succumbing to greed and stinginess. They are first to help a colleague in difficulty, lastly to return a barbed reply. They honestly desire the advancement of the other's interests. Transparent in their honesty and genuine in their concern, they reject both the easy answer of the opining politician and the laissez-faire stance of the selfish secular man. Meek in personal demeanor, their bold and righteous pursuits." For a variety of reasons, Christians have lost this vision of witness and are slow 
to return to it. But in better days and in other lands, the faithful and divinely empowered proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ so transform men that they in turn become the light of the world. Listen to this list. Prison reform, medical care, trade unions, control of a perverted and perverting liquor trade, abolition of slavery, abolition of child labor, establishment of orphanages, reform of the penal code. In all these areas, the followers of Jesus spearheaded the drive for righteousness. The darkness was alleviated. And this, I submit, has always been the pattern when professing Christians have been less concerned with personal prestige and more concerned with the norms of the kingdom. Your your good deeds, your good works are your light. That is your light, lights of the world. And Paul says, the only way we can become this bright is if we hold fast to the word of life. The word of life here is the gospel. Paul would say the only way to shine bright is to preach the gospel to yourself every day. The gospel is the fuel, Christian, to your lamp. Paul ends with this this picture of his potential death. And he paints this picture of him being poured out as a drink offering among the sacrificial offering of your faith, is, is the way he says it. In other words, this is what Paul says. With with all of that, right? In my absence, I'm no longer there. Here's what Paul says. In other words, if I die, it was worth it. It was worth it. It was worth it for you to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. All that I ask is that you rejoice in it and rejoice with me. That's how he ends. He says, even if I die in Rome... I pray I will be proud to hear of the brightness of your light. And so let me me just ask, church, how did it all begin? Where did it all start? How did the gospel of Jesus move into this tiny European riverside gathering of, of women? Disciples making disciples. Disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. We need to pray for this sort of joy in the gospel and pray that Jesus would, would, would use us as lights in the world the way Paul hoped Jesus would use the church in Philippi and did, and did. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, For even as there's, there's growing turmoil and suffering and challenges in the world, there's, there's triumph, triumph and rejoicing in heaven because there is a certainty there that the gospel will win. And we, we here are praying that the gospel will increasingly impact us, impact the men and women and kids of this church impact our communities the same exact way that it landed on the hearts of the men and women in Philippi. May the gospel of grace transform the way we think, the way we feel, the way we choose and spend, and may it infiltrate every single aspect of our lives and hearts and homes. 
May the kindness and encouragement of you, Jesus, fill us with joy, with peace. We hope to, 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 be, to be bright lights in the world, used for the good of others. May we rejoice in the gospel, and may it bring us joy, all for your glory. Amen, amen, and amen.